That is a great song this morning as we get started and we start looking at our scripture passage. Um, Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In other words, nothing else is necessary. We don't need to add to the gospel. We don't need to pile on a whole bunch of stuff, requirements and things, right? That's actually what we're going to see this morning in our passage. So as we open up our Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 15, if you would, please. You might recall that at a couple of points in our look at Acts, this study, we have seen where there were threats to the early church. And we've talked about some of those threats were external. Uh, They came from maybe the Pharisees and those who were opposing this new movement. And some of the threats were internal. You might consider Ananias and Sapphira an internal threat that God dealt with early on so that that wouldn't spread and permeate. Well, last week, you might recall, that Paul was actually stoned and left for dead. He was stoned to such a degree that the stoners thought he was done. And then when the other apostles gathered, he gets up (laughs) and goes back to preaching the gospel. And so we saw an external threat to the church, an external persecution that was occurring last week in chapter 14. And if you remember, Michael said that 14.22, verse 22, Paul and others said that the kingdom of God is entered through many trials and tribulations, which includes stoning and a lot of other things, right? The kingdom of God includes and is entered into some of the tough stuff that we have to experience in life. Well, this morning we're going to see another sort of trial, if you will, but it's going to be internal. It won't be the external threat like Paul getting stoned, but it'll be an internal dilemma that the church has to navigate so that it doesn't cause a rift and ultimately a division. And what we're going to see at large is an issue of legalism. How many of you know what we mean when we say legalism? (laughs) It can look like a lot of different things, right? And you've probably heard this term tossed around and used a lot in church. Um, So we're going to kind of define that. We're going to look at what legalism can mean and what it can do and why it's a problem for the church. Legalism doesn't leave the gospel like the song we just sung, Nothing But the Blood. It says, "Mm, how about the blood and this and this and this? And so our passage this morning, we're going to look at chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. We're going to break it into four sections. The first section is just going to be verses 1 through 5. The second section is going to be verses 6 through 11. The third will be 12 through 29. And the fourth section will be verses 30 through 35. And I'll fill you in on maybe how these will break down as we get closer, as we begin each one. Uh, At large, we are going to look at what 
legalism does to the gospel message. But I also saw, and Michael and I discussed this a little bit as we were going through this passage, what Luke does as he's recording these events is we see some of the personalities of the people coming through as well. We see an initial discussion by Paul and Barnabas. We see a discussion by Peter. We see comments by James, and then we see the results of those. So that's how we're going to kind of look at this. Uh, It's going to discuss legalism, but we're going to look at what Paul and Barnabas and their approach to it. We're going to look at Peter's personality and his approach to it, and then ultimately James and then the results of what their decisions are. So many of you are probably familiar with this passage. This is considered the, the council at Jerusalem, where they have to make some decisions. They have to decide how... Are we to interpret the gospel message and how are we to deal with these false teachers that have come in? And they weren't really false teachers. They were, they were Jews who were instructing fellow believers in things that they felt were necessary to be saved. So verses 1 through 5, it says, And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, and their teaching said, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem, the apostles and elders, concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So what we're going to see in verses 1 through 5 is sort of a a theological defense or a theological issue that Paul and Barnabas have with legalism. Theirs is going to be very theological in nature as they respond. Look at verse 1. This is the issue. It said, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren that they must be circumcised according to the custom of Moses in order to be saved. So they were teaching and endorsing. These are believers. These are Jewish believers who had come down to the church and were teaching that Gentile converts to Christianity also needed to be circumcised and probably do a lot of other things according to the custom of Moses, according to the law. We see later on down in verse 5 that you know, part of what they were maintaining was maybe a lot of portions of the law. So it wasn't that faith and salvation in Jesus was simply enough for them. They were saying, no, these Gentile converts need to also do these other things in order to be saved. Circumcision and whatever. And so we see a form of legalism here in the early church. And today we see legalism as well. Some of you are nodding your heads. Yep, we've seen it. It rears its, we'll say, rears its ugly head in a couple of different ways. The first, we might say, isn't necessarily even in the church. The first is just a worldview. Even unsaved people are susceptible to espousing legalism. 
What the unsaved world might do is say, oh, I can elevate myself to a higher power. I can elevate myself to my God, whatever or whomever that is, by doing things. By creating a list of things that I'm good at and make me a good person and morally right and upstanding in the eyes of society. And that will get me saved. That will allow me to pass from this life to the next whatever that person's theology happened to be. But ultimately, it's a works-based faith. I was listening to Sirius XM, um, The Message. They have a Christian channel called The Message. And I was listening to an interview, and it was a studio session with Jason Gray, a Christian artist, Jason Gray. And Jason Gray had another guest artist who was sort of up and coming, and she was giving a testimony, and she was talking about how she finally came to Christ. And part of her conversion to Christ was that she realized all of the ways that she was trying to live a good life prior to faith in Jesus was just a bunch of hard work. She was like... Man, this is exhausting. Trying to keep this balance sheet whereby my good things are just a little bit more than my bad things and hopefully that gets me into wherever I think I'm destined for. So legalism, even in a just a secular worldview, really espouses the self. What can I do and what activities can I be responsible for in terms of my salvation and my faith. Well, you know, that kind of happens in the church too. You know, a way that we see it in the church is what we call maybe a cross plus. And I've kind of hinted that, that this morning already. Some churches promote legalism through requirements in addition to faith in Jesus. Oh, yeah, so you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is great. Perfect. Um, now you need to be a member. Uh, now you need to get baptized. And we even hear things like, now you need to speak in tongues. Oh, yeah, accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior, that, that's great. But you're probably not completely saved until you do all of these things as well. Have you guys heard that kind of stuff? Those trends in the contemporary church today? That's legalism. It's not just the blood of Jesus that's enough. It's Jesus plus. Rob and I have a friend from our downtown ministry who was actually visiting a church, um, a very charismatic, very Pentecostal church, and he experienced things taking place in that church so much to the point that a discussion arose and he left that environment in tears believing that he was unsaved. That his faith in Jesus wasn't enough. That tongues and other things that they were espousing in that church were also required of him. And because he had not done those kinds of things, he, his heart was broken and he was literally crying. His testimony to us was that he was crying because he felt that he was unsaved. So even in the church, the church can be susceptible to legalism, which is also rooted in the same principle that the rest of the world might look at, and that is, I still want to be responsible. 
I still want my salvation to be about something that I've done in addition to the blood of Jesus. Because I've performed these kinds of things and I've associated with this church and become this kind of a member and whatnot. Now the third way that some Christians promote legalism might be trying to earn God's favor. It's a little more subtle. It's not as outward and obvious. And you may even be susceptible, and I may even be susceptible to this at times, where we aren't outright saying, oh, it's faith in Jesus plus all this other stuff. But what we might kind of hold true in our hearts is that I can earn extra favor with the Lord by doing these things. Friends, we've got all the favor in the Lord that we could ever have positionally. He loves us more than anything. He loves us as much as He will ever love us because of our salvation in Jesus. You cannot earn greater favor with God than you already have. And it's certainly not going to be rooted in a bunch of accomplishments and things that you feel are important to gain extra favor with the Lord. And so we see this come in all kinds of forms that seem much more subtle. Maybe maybe somebody believes that um, abstaining from drinking and smoking and a lot of other things uh, are more than just bringing honor to God, but actually gaining favor with Him. See, there's a different perspective on those. We might do something because we just feel that's a responsible thing or something that we believe brings honor to God. There's nothing wrong with that. But if our motivation is, I'm not going to do these things and I'm going to live this kind of a way because we are setting ourselves up as being more pious than the next person and we're trying to actually become closer to God as a result and earn His favor, that's a flawed motivation. You know, <laughs> right now, literally... Literally at home, on our countertop, is four or five bottles of wine and like two or three 12 packs of beer because Susan had hosted a Worthington School Board candidate on Thursday night, a meet and greet where people can meet and learn what this candidate, and all these people come with all of this stuff. We don't, we don't drink. We don't drink in our house, don't have anything uh, or anything against anybody who does. I cannot say scripturally that drinking is forbidden. I do know that God warns of being drunken with alcohol and being inebriated to the point where our faculties are no longer, right? But we see many examples of wine in scripture. So I don't stand up here or stand at any point next to fellow brethren and say, oh, I don't drink because I'm holier than you. No. I don't say that I don't drink because I'm trying to get closer to God and earn favor. No. We don't drink because we just don't need to. Period. So now we have this stockpile that we're trying to figure out how to get rid of that I'm walking by every day. You know, I, I gave one to a contractor uh, on Friday morning and he was very appreciative and probably will plan to do the same thing. But my point is that many people will do that thinking that they're so much holier as a result, that they're maybe better than the person they're sitting next to, and that it is elevating their status with the Lord. 
So we see that legalism can be a factor in the unsaved world. Legalism can be a factor in the church when a church espouses that it's salvation in Jesus plus a whole bunch of stuff. And legalism can even rear its ugly head in terms of things that we feel like we can do personally to gain greater favor with the Lord. And so what we see in verses 1 through 5, and specifically in 1 and 2 here, is that these Jewish leaders, they were believers, but they were promoting a form of legalism which represented probably like the cross plus. Hey, Gentiles, it's great that you guys believe in Jesus. Hey, that's a great thing. You've accepted him as Lord and Savior, but you also need to be circumcised and probably need to hold true to the rest of Moses' law as well. So a cross plus... Verse 5 says, observe the law of Moses. You know, we get a hint there. They began with circumcision in verses 1 and 2, but we learn a little bit later here in verse 5 that in many respects it was probably just probably more than just circumcision. Probably a lot of Jewish custom was being built up and required of these Gentile believers. Does that happen today? That happens today in churches. When we see one thing that we know is legalism, oftentimes there's a whole bunch of other stuff involved as well. I think about a relationship that we have with people. Our family knows some people at a a very apostolic church. And um, I'd only ever really interfaced with them in sort of a business setting of sorts where wardrobe and attire... There were no options for it. You know, we were, we were dressed business-like. We were invited, our family was invited to a picnic down there on their property. So we go, and their whole church is there, and it's a barbecue, and there's a cookout. And, you know, I'm wearing shorts, and Susan's wearing shorts, and you know, we're dressed fine, not revealing a whole lot of stuff or anything like that, normal, as we all would be dressed. And unbeknownst to us, you know, all the women there are wearing denim skirts down to here, you know, and all the men are wearing jeans, full length, obviously. And it was all right. We were accepted. We were loved. And there were other people there who were not part of the church, and they were dressed very similar to us. Um, and I bring up this point because we were given a little tour. They were giving us a tour of the building. And so we go inside, and I'm talking to one of the people that I have an ongoing relationship with. And he says to us, or kind of to me, pulls me aside, he goes, I bet you guys think we're probably really, really ultra-conservative and just super, super conservative in our approach to faith. And I said, well, why would you say that? And he goes, well, you know, the women all have the long hair, and um, the women all wear skirts all the time, and, and us men, we always wear full-length pants. You know, you must see us as being really ultra-conservative. And I said, mm, actually, I think you're pretty liberal. And that totally set them back. Like, he did not expect that. And, and he said, well, why would you say something like that? And I said, well, because your interpretive scripture, interpretation of scripture is very liberal. You know, the way you guys see baptism and what it means to you, the way you guys see tongues and what it means to you, the way you see wardrobe and what it means to you is actually a very liberal handling of the word. And they were like, What? <laughs> You know, I just completely flipped it on its lid. Not not by design. I wasn't intending to, and I wasn't intending to just sort of rock their world. You know, I didn't. It wasn't like a, a knife and sticking it. It wasn't that at all. They began the discussion, and that is how I see their handling of the word. And and so I said, no, it's a very liberal handling of the word. I don't see you guys as conservative at all, which 
was an eye-opener for them, I believe. And so, as we see these Jewish leaders uh, teaching and, and trying to instruct these new Gentile believers in, in the church, we have to assume that they had a very, very persuasive argument. Did you notice what verse 2 says? Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them. I mean, you know, when, when you hear about Paul having a really, really intense debate, you have to imagine that the opposition's putting up a pr- pretty good argument of some sort. And the second part that we can assume in terms of a very watertight presentation by these Jewish leaders was that they asked Paul and Barnabas, why don't you go back to the elders in Jerusalem and get a ruling on this. Those believers weren't even willing, after this great debate and dissension, and we can assume very theological presentation by Paul and Barnabas, they weren't even willing to accept that. Instead, they said, can you guys go back to headquarters and have a big meeting and uh, get a ruling on this and come back? I'm paraphrasing. That's... That's pretty bold. Paul and Barnabas, we hear what you're saying. We're not on board with you yet. Let's get a third opinion. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. We've seen this before. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Paul, when he was dealing with the church in Galatia, was very much dealing with legalism. Um, Very, very much dealing with um, practices by Jewish converts to the faith who still felt that holding to the law was important and necessary for salvation. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, Jesus, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, or God, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So this instance we see in Acts wasn't an isolated instance. This is something that came up on multiple occasions. For the early church. And then jump over to chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in, I would say snuck, but he says, sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. So go back to Acts. So we see that Paul had dealt with it with the church of Galatia as well. And he presents a pretty tight theological argument and opposition, which presumably he did in Acts as well. And he says that to espouse the cross plus anything else is a form of bondage. To try and hold true to the law itself is a form of bondage. And we'll come back to that at the end of our look at Scripture this morning. So here is our first principle. Uh, Legalism distorts the gospel and makes it a threat to the church. Legalism distorts the gospel and makes it a threat to the church. So I said that 
that was kind of Paul and Barnabas and, and what they were dealing with. And they get back to Jerusalem and they meet with the elders and everybody else and look at verses 6 through 11. This will be our second section. And we're going to see comments that Peter then makes. Verse 6 says, And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also gave it to us, him to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So what we're going to kind of see from Peter is maybe a social observation to legalism. It's not exclusively. Peter presents a very theological explanation as well, but it has a social bent to it, right? And his social observation or social bent is that God doesn't distinguish between the Jew and the Gentile in Christ Jesus. It says that after there had been much debate about what those Jewish believers had been teaching there, Peter stands up and he's going to make four points about the nature of the gospel. His, his first point is going to be that God made a decision to include the Gentiles. Look at verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter reveals that... <laughs> God made the decision to include Gentiles in salvation. Keep your finger here and turn back to Acts 10. You guys will remember this. Remember when Peter met with Cornelius and he had that encounter and many Gentiles came to salvation and then later on Peter was having to recount and defend among his fellow Jewish brethren the legitimacy of of the Gentile inclusion. So verse 28 of chapter 10. Verse 28 says, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him, and yet, watch this, God has shown me, Peter, that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. So God revealed to Peter, this wasn't something Peter came up with on his own, God revealed to Peter, I am the one who makes things clean. And I have called these Gentiles clean. Don't you dare exclude them from something that I am wanting to do. Keep your finger there. Look at verse 11. I mean, chapter 11, verse 7. Chapter 11, verse 7. And I also heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Whose voice is that? It's the voice of the Lord. It didn't originate with Peter. God says to Peter, Arise. Look at verse 9, chapter 11. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, but God has cleansed, no longer considered unholy. 
again, initiating with God. Verse 12, And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. God initiated. So Peter, if we flip back to... Well, keep your fingers in in Acts chapter 10, but flip back to chapter 15. Peter's first point in verse 7 is that the decision to include Gentiles began with the Lord. And he had clearly revealed that, and they all knew that. Now look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 15. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So the second point Peter is going to make is that God saves Jews and Gentiles identically. He shows no distinction. He saves them identically. That God knows the hearts of the Gentiles. He gave them the Holy Spirit. And he cleansed their hearts by faith. Isn't that how Peter and his fellow Jews were saved? And God did the same thing through Gentiles. So keep your, your finger in Acts 15. Jump back to chapter 10 again. Chapter 10, verse 34. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Look at verse 44 to 47 in chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers, the Jews, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them, speaking with tongues, and exalting God. And then Peter answered, verse 47, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And then chapter 11, verse 15. And as I began to speak, Peter says, the Holy Spirit fall upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. Go ahead and flip back to chapter 15 now. So Peter had previously revealed that God saves Gentiles just like he saves the Jews. Not just theologically, but even mechanically speaking. That their salvation experience looked an awful lot like it did of Peter and his brethren at Pentecost. And so he reminds his audience here in Jerusalem as they're trying to decide how do we deal with the cross plus. So his second point is that God saves Jews and Gentiles identically. Peter's third point. God did not burden the Gentiles with a yoke that even the Jews could not bear. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? (laughs) Remember Peter also saying to Ananias and Sapphira, why do you put God to the test? Peter's saying here to his fellow brethren, why are you requiring this extra stuff from the law of these Gentiles when we as Jews couldn't even bear it? We couldn't even live up to God's standard. If it was impossible for us, then you know it's impossible for them as well. So why are you putting God to the test by burdening them with a yoke? 
We think about what Paul said in Romans chapter 7 about what the law came to do. The law doesn't have any ability to save. The law simply revealed sin and it reveals the need for a savior. Paul says that the law afforded me this opportunity to understand how wretched a man I am and how indebted I am to sin and the need for Jesus Christ to redeem me. That's what the law does. The law doesn't have any ability to save in and of itself. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to get rid of the law, I came to fulfill it. Because you can't fulfill the law on your own, I'm going to do it for you on your behalf. Because you're constantly screwing up and you can't live up to God's standard of righteousness, I will do it. And you will be righteous through me. And so the fourth point that Peter is going to make is that God saves Jews and Gentiles through grace alone. We see in Romans 3, 23 and 24 that being justified is a gift of grace, not something that we have earned through a task. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And then what does Paul say after that? Because if it was about works, then what would we want to do? We'd want to boast in ourselves. God makes it a gift, and he makes it a gift of faith through grace, so that we can't take credit for it. And we can't say, ha ha, I'm saved because I'm such a good person, I did this, this, and this, and this. So our second principle this morning is that legalism adds to a gospel which is simply just faith in Jesus and nothing more. Legalism adds to a gospel which is simply just faith in Jesus and nothing more. So that's what Peter has to say on the matter. Now we're going to see what James has to say on the matter. Verses 12 through 29. And all the multitude kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And the prophet said, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old." Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter. We won't read that letter for right now because we're going to summarize it anyway. So what we see here is that 
James, is going to summarize the true gospel in sort of a more practical and mechanical way. Again, still very theological. All three guys have a very theological approach. But Paul and Barnabas, ultimately very theological. Peter, a little bit social as it pertains to the Jews and Gentiles. And James is going to be very practical and very mechanical. He's going to say, hey, as a result of our conclusion that, that salvation is in Christ alone and nothing else, here is how we need to instruct the church. Here is how we need to instruct others in their understanding. And he's going to give them a framework for how they should behave. And so he begins in verses 13 to 19 by agreeing with Peter, Paul, and Barnabas and everything they've said. And he goes on, we see that to show how Scripture supports exactly what they have experienced. The prophets foretold that God would include the Gentiles, and they're seeing that fulfilled through their very own eyes. But he acknowledges that there will inevitably be a tension between the Jew and the Gentile believer. He's not ignoring this tension. He's not saying, oh, just get with the flow. He's saying, we understand that the Jews are coming to Jesus with a certain background and a heritage, and they've been steeped in the law. And Gentiles are coming to Jesus with a background of a lot of heathenism and a whole culture of sin. And these two are going to now be united in Christ Jesus under the church roof. There's going to be some tension. And so far the tension has looked as the Jews saying, mm, you got to do all the things that we've been doing for decades, for, for centuries. And James is wise to recognize this tension and say, okay, here's how we need to instruct the church to behave going forward. Verse 20. Well, let's look at verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. So he says to the Jews, don't try and strap them with this law. If they're coming to God, don't require these things of them. Don't trouble them. Don't hinder them. That's what he says to the Jews. Don't burden these Gentiles. But in verse 20, of the Gentiles, he says, we should write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. So James's answer to dealing with the tension is to actually establish some structure and some rules. Now some of you may say, well, didn't we just say that legalism is a bad thing? Well, this is not legalism. This is order and structure. We've already said that legalism is when we're trying to build ourselves up or attain some sort of standing in the eyes of God based on our activities. What James is espousing and promoting here is a means by which the church can come together, believers from various backgrounds, and recognize and understand that salvation is in Christ Jesus only and that what is necessary to live and to function and to celebrate Christ together is a sensitivity. That the Gentiles need to be sensitive to the background that the Jews are bringing to the table and the Jews need to be sensitive to the background that the Gentiles are bringing to the table. Don't try and strap the Gentiles with the law and, oh, hey, Gentiles... 
Don't keep living like you guys have been living. Your Greek culture is ridiculously flagrant in sin. You guys have five different kinds of marriages. Some of you in this church probably had multiple wives. I don't know anybody would want that. It's hard enough. I mean, I'm blessed with one. Um, (laughs) So, before we think that what's being established here by James is legalism, no, he's providing a framework and a structure that is rooted in sensitivity. Not, Not rules and legalism that earn salvation, but a sensitivity to multiple backgrounds that have come to faith in Christ Jesus. And so what he's going to say to the Gentiles is, rule number one is abstain from things contaminated by idols. We would assume this is likely food that's been sacrificed to idols, right? Paul discussed this in in 1 Corinthians. His rule number two is abstain from sexual immorality. Greeks and Romans were a heavily sexualized society. Heavily. I mean, not only did they promote multiple wives, but you think about the temple prostitutes and everything else. And so James says, hey guys, you got to put that aside because that's really, really offensive to your fellow Jewish believers. And then the third thing is Abstain from food that was strangled or still had the blood in it. Remember how God says that the life is in the blood? God had instructed the Jews for centuries not to partake of the blood because the life is in the blood. That was sacred and that was important to them. Well, a Gentile knows that his or her freedom in Christ, we know this today, we are neither saved nor condemned by what we consume. We have some freedom, we have some liberty. But we could sit across the street, the table from an Orthodox Jew and be very offensive with our Christian liberty. Paul addresses this. We'll talk about that maybe in a minute. And so even though salvation doesn't require anything except faith in Jesus, it does require a sensitivity to others in the body. So our third principle, the gospel's lack of of legalism does not give us a license to sin. The gospel's lack of legalism does not give us a license to sin. Now our fourth section. Verses 30 through 35. We're going to see the conclusion by the elders in Jerusalem is sent back to the churches. So what they have decided and what they have all agreed upon and have determined, they will send back to the churches as a form of letter, as James has proposed, and it's going to be really, really neat results. Look at verses 30 and 31. It says, so when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Isn't that beautiful? Remember what began in verses 1 and 2 was 
salvation in Jesus is great, but you also got to be circumcised, and you pr- we probably feel like you need to keep most of Moses' law. That's a lot of bondage. That's a heavy weight to carry around. And what we see here as a result of the conclusion that the gospel is by faith alone and nothing more is freedom. The burden has been lifted. It's encouraging. And it says that they were strengthened with this news. They were strengthened and encouraged and and rejoiced in the fact that they didn't have to try and lug this huge burden of the law. I mean, think about our lives. Think about when you watch maybe people of the Muslim faith who are working so hard to earn salvation for their ledger seat and their balance sheet to have more good than bad. That is exhausting. Remember when Jesus said to his followers in Matthew... He said, look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. They themselves can't even keep the law. They tell you to, and they're strapping you with it, but they themselves recognize how hard it is, and they can't even do it on their own. And so we see a great joy and a great burden that has been lifted that ultimately began when some Jewish believers said, no, nah, you got to do a whole bunch of extra stuff. Praise be to God that salvation, yours and mine, is in Christ Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen. Here's our fourth principle. Simplicity of the gospel frees us from legalism and leads to joy encouragement, and strength. Simplicity of the gospel frees us from legalism and leads to joy, encouragement, and strength. I'll give a small little example as I kind of close. It's very, very light and immaterial, but it's something from my own life. My mom used to tell me... um, Nothing sits higher than the Bible. So when I was a young, young kid, I'd have my Bible sitting on my dresser, you know, and, and, and I would never put anything on top of it. Nothing ever sat on it. Nothing got stacked on it. You know, I was always very, very cautious and very, very careful. And I think in some respects that's kind of what she meant, but I know that it was also very theological in nature. You know, she was espousing the idea, the principle that this is of utmost importance and to always hold it and treat it that way in my heart. But for me, what I understood it at a very young age was, don't ever like put anything on this. You know, treat it with respect. Don't ever, you know, whatever. And, and, and now I've been through a bunch of Bibles that I've run ragged. I have one that's in my car. I have one that's downtown. I have many at home. I throw them in the back seat. You know, it's, they're in the trunk. There's stuff stacked on them all the time. And the reason I share this is because I actually had to come to a place in my own heart where I had to make a decision and go, what was mom actually talking about when she taught me that? Did she truly mean 
what I interpreted? Or was she just talking about the biblical principle of the word of God having priority in my life? And, and to be reverent. But not literally that I couldn't put anything next to it on top of it or whatever. You see, there's, there's nothing sacred about the paper and the bindings and the black ink on the white page. But sacred is God's revelation to us. And so in my own life, I had a form of legalism, if you will. Um, it was a complete and total misunderstanding of a strong biblical truth and biblical principle that I took to a point in, in my flesh that was inappropriate, but it created a burden for me as a kid. It created a struggle. Well, I can't have anything sitting close to that or up above that or on top of it on my dresser. And, and what do I do with this when I need to put it in my car and a whole bunch of other stuff? It might seem really, really silly, but as a kid... I had created a burden for myself that was rooted in some legalism. So, um, I wonder that if any of us today were to search our hearts uh, deep enough, there might be some practices that we secretly cling to, maybe in an attempt to elevate ourselves to God. Don't get me wrong, I believe everybody here, we have a very mature congregation here, spiritually and theologically mature. I believe that we would all give the right intellectual answer. I have no doubt. I have no doubt that we can intellectually answer correctly. But I wonder if each of us were to search our hearts, there might be some things that we hold kind of dear and in a a strange way we might feel like this might get us closer to God if we do it. It might be somewhat ritualistic and traditional in nature maybe it's something we need to let go of because while we might not be treating it as a cross plus, we might be saying, I think I can get closer to God if I keep doing this. And on the flip side, I said that we'd come back to Paul's mention of Christian liberties in 1 Corinthians. Remember he cautioned Gentile believers where he said, you might sit across the table from somebody and you know that the food and the meat that you just bought in the marketplace may or may not have been sacrificed to an idol, but it doesn't matter to you. You cook it, you ingest it, and it doesn't have any bearing on your salvation and your holiness. But he said, you know, when you sit across from that Jew who has been steeped in the law, And if they have any suspicion that that food you just purchased in the marketplace may have previously been sacrificed to one of those false gods and goddesses, man, that is really going to be offensive to them and they're going to struggle. And you sitting across from just mowing it down is going to be a potential stumbling block. And so he says, be careful with your Christian liberties. Even though you know you're neither saved nor condemned by what you put in your mouth, be careful. So for us today at Renew, we need to be careful sometimes when they're in the presence of others. We don't change the gospel. We don't water it down. and We don't say that it's not nothing but the blood. It certainly is. Nothing but the blood. But we need to practice and exhibit a sensitivity to others based on where they might be coming from. So that we don't create a stumbling block, and so that we honor Christ as James has suggested in the letter that they gave. And the result is liberty 
freedom, joy, and the release of a burden. That's it. Father.